0: And I'm Ashley Hamilton, and And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. This episode is brought to you by Jiminy's, the maker of sustainable dog food and treats made with cricket protein that is better for the environment using less land and water to produce. Cricket protein is a superfood that is delicious, nutritious, and easy to digest for dogs. Save 25% on your first purchase. Go to Jiminy's.com slash Worm25 and use the code Worm25 at checkout. And thank you to Dipsy for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to heat things up, there is a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30 day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com/worm. Claire, yes. What's our story, our- sexy or not?
1: Our story is the story of other people with a little pizzazz added by ourselves. We're kind of like if you brought us leftovers and then we put it in the air fryer and added a sauce, perhaps. Yeah, or cracked it in an egg. Oh, you know what this is? This is the fried rice of celebrity memoirs. Yes. Yes. We're taking what they gave us and we're making it kind of a new thing. So if you are not looking for the egg and the seaweed, I recommend you look elsewhere because that's what we're delivering. That's what we're serving up Benihana style. That's what we're cutting up and putting on a plate and making into a volcano to explode with ideas. So if you're looking to be satisfied, stick around. Leave us maybe a five-star review. Ashley reads out thank yous at the end of the episode. And if you're looking for something else... Go get cereal. Do you know what I mean? Find your cereal. Just don't stay here, you know, and then complain about it later. I want to say thank you so much to everyone who came out to the L.A. show. At time of recording, we have not yet done the Chicago show, so you guys are going to thank you next week. But, well, if you guys live up to the hype. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If you guys live up to the L.A. show, because
0: that was fucking incredible. Thank you
1: guys. Everyone who came out. Someone brought us flowers. That was so sweet. Someone gave me an invite to the Magic Castle, which is a dream of mine. and I am just so grateful. I'm so grateful. Ashley, if you were a memoirist... And last week was a chapter of your memoir. What would you call it? I
0: would call it good starting point. And I think that that covers literally every single thing about my week. But I wanted to zero in on travel. I am an anxious traveler. And I think for the career path that I've chosen, that is not Are you an good. anxious traveler? I'm a very anxious traveler. I like Cannot sleep the night before a flight almost ever. I'm always scared I'm going to forget something. That's why I got a cold this week is because I don't sleep leading up to a flight and especially a flight that I was bringing bug on. I was like losing my mind. It was a very cold week in New York and I was just suffering of night sweats. (laughs) I want to be better at traveling and I think that last week was a really good starting point. Just like a real biting of the bullet to have a lot of travel in a short amount of time and I think that coming up this week itself was a really good starting point for our upcoming travels and the way that we hope to take this podcast and the amount of shows that we hope to do on the road so I feel like doing a good job with my traveling this week and doing having a fun time with our on the roadness this week is like a really good starting point for the first day of the rest of my life Claire yes if you were to write a memoir about your life what would you title the chapter about last week
1: Ashley you were right <laughs> yeah you know what you were right about i know <laughs> checking a bag
0: oh my god <laughs> i
1: believe we're both doing travel based weeks but we did we just tra- did just
0: travel a lot
1: yeah we traveled a lot last week i don't normally check a bag this year in 2022 i have checked multiple bags and i have to say it really does change the experience i used to be somebody who's like if you can fit eight pairs of underwear in a backpack that's what you get to bring and then you just sit with the backpack in your lap like i don't even <laughs> attempt to put my stuff in the overhead bin i'm just like i sit as a ball in a cramped up little toilet seat and i am <laughs> i'm always like in the last seat of the last row and i just accept that when i fly it doesn't matter how far where i will be deeply uncomfortable And I don't bring anything. And I have to say, checking a bag and being like, pack a hairdryer. Pack a change of shoes. Pack a bathing suit if you want. It really opens your life up. And I used to live in absolute fear of waiting for the carousel. I used to be like, there is no worse spending of the time than sitting waiting for your bags to come out. But you know what? It's not that long. It's not that long. And when you're sitting as far back as I am, by the time you get out, like, the bags get unpacked before I do. Yes. So it really wasn't bad. And I have to say, it's really changed the game for me. It's so nice to be able to just move through an airport with ease. You have a purse. You have maybe... I mean, I will say I was carrying a purse filled with stuff and then a carry-on filled with podcasting equipment. So I wasn't, like, easy, breezy, lemon, squeezy. But, like, eventually you will be now that you've discovered the ways
0: of bag checking. It's
1: nice. It's nice. Anyway, should we move on to this week's episode? I guess so. Speaking of frequent travelers. This guy is a big traveler. This week we did Blue, The Color of Noise by Steve Aoki, one of the top 10 DJs in the world per his own book jacket. How many DJs are in the world? 19. Okay. Actually, that's not true. I mean, how many boys are in college? That's how many DJs there are. <laughs> we also did bring in experts for this episode. We love to sometimes have a context given to us. So at the end of this episode, we are interviewing dj party shirt who's two people yes dj's party shirt i believe they're amazing i'm so excited for you guys to hear what they have to say about steve from an insider's perspective yes from inside the dj booth
0: and so now let's open up blue the color of noise and figure out how much stuff is in fact the same color as noise aka blue to me noise is gray i think it depends on i mean lord has that like seeing noise synesthesia thing so noise is many colors, but to Steve Aoki, it is one color that is blue. What else is
1: blue? So the way this book is created is there's a chapter and then there's a drop. Chapter, drop. We hypothesize that the drop is like a beat drop and he's like dropping a bit of emotion into you. It's like a little like boom. The chapter is the buildup and then he drops a cannon of emotion. I don't know that the drop is always tied to the chapter and I don't know that the drop is always emotional. The drops are some of the weirdest things I've ever seen, but they're always specifically like a drop of blue. So I thought maybe it was like a drop of water. I think it could be a lot of things. Steve loves to leave things open ended. I think the fact that he called his book blue is like a perfect indictment of who he is as a writer because he's like, everything's blue and blue is everything and water's blue and wet is blue and sadness is blue, but happiness is blue. Do you see it? And you're like blue. Yeah, I can see blue.
0: Yeah, I will say he did pick one of the top colors out there. And he was like, you can see this color in everything. And it's like quite literally. It is a primary color. (laughs) It is the color of the sky. Every time you walk outside in daylight, you're going to see a little blue. To be like, I was driving down the street and the day of my
1: father's death, the sky was blue. It's like, well, yeah, I could have guessed. I walked in my bedroom. What color had it been painted? Blue. Suspicious. Did you pick blue, Steve? He's like, sometimes I like girls with blue eyes. I believe you, and they're out there. Anyway, so he he opens with a little
0: nod to the color blue. He says, Sometimes I think my whole life can be seen through shades of blue. The hope and promise of a clear blue sky, the vast expanse of the deep blue sea, the melancholy that clutches my heart between the notes of an old blues tune the Dodger blue of my cap when I was invited to throw out the first pitch at Dodger Stadium, the sweet electric blue of a first-generation BMW i8, the car of my dreams. I do feel like to squeeze in, in those few sentences, two absolute brags. (laughs) To be like, you know this fancy car? And the time I threw out the first pitch at the Dodgers game? Those are some blue things that
1: we can all relate to. No, just me? Whatever. So he gives the background of his family. And if you guys didn't know this, His dad invented Benihana. Steve Aoki is the heir to the Benihana fortune. I guess it depends because he has older brothers. So he's an heir to the Benihana fortune. Correct. So Steve Aoki was born November 30th, 1977. So he's 44 years old now. He wrote this book in 2019. So he was 41. I think the math works out.
0: So he writes about his early life, his family, and his childhood. His dad, like we said, was the inventor of Benihana. And his mom and his dad had three children together. But he writes, my family tree's got a whole lot of branches. There's even a whole other tree. So when he was young, his dad was in a major boating accident. And the people that they called to the hospital were his wife. And then they also got a hold of his girlfriend, who it turns out had other children with him. He had families everywhere there was another woman with another child somewhere else that they didn't find out about till way later so Devin aoki the famous model is his sister
1: from his dad's mistress's family but they were all being born at the same time so he had two older siblings that were like 10 years older than him and then him And at that same time, I guess the two older siblings were born before all the success. And then Steve was born during this birthing boom that his father was going through, where he had the secret half-sister that I didn't know about for years, was two months older than him. He had three other siblings that were all within his age range. He was born in Miami. The boating accident happened in San Francisco his wife and his mistress were both called out to be by his bedside because they thought he was going to die Steve's mother stayed nursed him to health and the minute he was back on his feet she divorced him and moved Steve and his two older siblings to Newport Beach
0: yes so he writes for the rest of his life my father would think of his many children as one big happy family but our reality was a little different when we were younger we lived with our mothers under separate roofs and we kids weren't all together except for on special occasions or on vacation with my father now as a adults they are close as siblings but it was this weird little thing where they I think the dad was just kind of like well secrets out let's all be one big happy
1: family and they were like we'll see they also lived on opposite coasts I'm pretty sure Devin's family was from the east coast obviously they lived on the west coast and it doesn't seem like the dad spent much time with any of these families. like he had three full families and he spent no time with any of them yes he had to go make more families and more
0: restaurants
1: So a lot of who Steve Aoki is comes from, I think, feeling like an outsider, both in his own family. He says there was love, absolutely, but it was mashed together with so many other emotions. It wasn't always clear to me where I fit in the mix, if I even fit in at all. And then he also talks about how hard it was growing up in Newport Beach, which is a very conservative, super white, super traditional, like Americana town in the O.C., North of L.A. Yeah. So he writes, and there
0: I was in Newport Beach, left to find my own identity in a community where no one looked like me, no one thought like me, and no one seemed to want to have anything to do with me. So he sets out to make something of himself. I don't know that he ever, to this day, has an idea of who exactly he wants that to be. We read later that he kind of falls into a few different things. He loves music in general, but he writes here, whoever I was meant to be, I would become that person eventually, whatever it took. Same. Yeah, that does feel very cyclical. Like, what will be, will be. I mean, he literally says, I made a promise to myself, soon as I get a sense of who I was and where I was, that whatever I was meant to be, I would get there eventually.
1: I think, like, here what you see (laughs) is the seeds of, early on, he was very committed to throwing himself wholeheartedly into anything. Into something. (laughs) He wasn't going to be the kid who, when you ask him, like, oh, what are you into? Be like, I don't know, regular stuff. He was going to be like, here are my hobbies. Here are my interests. Here's my personality. Here's who I care about. He was looking for a genre. He
0: was looking for a genre and he would change it at the drop of a hat. That's the thing is he would throw himself wholeheartedly into something. And I think that he was not married to anything. I think if someone had come up to him and been like, this should be your thing. If at any point in his life, someone had said this should be your thing, he would have made that his thing. I guess that did happen with DJing. Yeah, no. Someone I,
1: said this should be your thing, and he became a DJ. He really kind of like milled about until something stuck. Yeah. And then he has this chapter of just bad writing. God bless him. I am my father's son. I mean, men love to talk about DNA. There's something to this DNA business, yes. We take the genetic material in our makeup and then we mash it up with the influences that we find along the way and somewhere in that nature versus nurture broth we drink deep and discover who it is that we were meant to be. I mean literally yes that just is how it works. But then he's like my memory doesn't work like other people's memory. The wiring is slightly off. I'll get a story in my head and it'll stay with me in a certain way for years and years and then one day I'll revisit that story with whoever might have been with me at the time, and then he or she will tell it from a whole other angle. Here's what it comes down to, best I can tell. There is a truth of what I've been told. There is the truth of what I have lived. There is the truth of what I remember. This is the formula, people. Been this way forever.
2: What
0: is that? A lot of my memories are like that. They go one way. Then I get to talking with someone who knows the deal, and they go a different way. There might even be a third or fourth perspective in there. I mean, yeah,
1: that's just how memories work. I like don't know what he thinks he's getting to here. Yeah, bro, memories change. People remember things differently. This is basically the intro of the book. He says, here's the truth of what
0: I've been told. Here's the truth of what I have lived. Here's the truth of what I remember. So he really needs to qualify for you that because he has this memory that works in a way that's different than everyone else's, his memory actually stems
1: from only his perspective. That's what we're going to get in this book. So then here's a drop. We're not going to do every drop because they're also like random and not all of them make sense. Some of them are very important. A couple of them I absolutely love. This drop is I am the blue of the horizon. I live and work at the edges of our blue planet. I stand between where we have been and where we are going. And then he goes, I'm like the lookout guy in the crow's nest on the main mast of a ship, keeping constant watch, looking out across the boundless seas on a never ending quest to spot the hottest new song, new style, new sound. This is not me blowing smoke. This is not me inflating what I do or try to add some cultural significance to my work. No, this is just how I see myself. This is where I stand, at the headwaters of the next big thing, where the sky meets the sea.
0: I don't know what he's talking about. Where fucking
1: people go to Coachella.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So then he gets into finding his love for music. It actually happened through Michael Jackson, which is a pretty rare first artist to be passionate about. I've never heard of Michael Jackson. he is like, you don't understand the way thriller hit me. I was young, but the zombies and the whatever, it really resonated with me. And it's like, yeah, I think that that was a thing that little kids were like, this is crazy and cool. And older people appreciated it, too. And that's why it became a global sensation.
1: And then the way he qualifies it, he's like, understand, I am deeply troubled by the allegations and revelations in Leaving Neverland, the HBO documentary that pushed a lot of people to reconsider Michael Jackson's place in our popular culture. So troubled that for a beat or two, I even considered not writing about him at all. But then I realized that basically he doesn't care
0: <laughs> <laughs> he basically says separate the art from the artist so we can appreciate michael without supporting yeah him
1: so he goes and sees michael jackson when he's young with one of his only friends he says we lived in this plain vanilla community and i was the only asian boy in my grade and kids have a way of piling on and being really cruel sometimes the cruelty takes the shape of indifference a lot of times i was on the butt end of some ignorant grade school teasing so he has one friend she takes him to a michael jackson concert and it blows his mind and i will say Like a hell of a concert to have be your first concert. Yeah. If something's going to set the standard of performance and what an artist can bring to the stage and just the overall impact of the pyrotechnics and the dancing and the choreography and the lights, Michael Jackson is quite a bar to set. So that became my template. Here was this giant of a performer at the very peak of his powers as an artist. And the takeaway for me was that this is how things should go when you went to a concert.
0: We jump ahead to Michael Jackson's death. Someone from Motown Records reaches out. They're doing a memorial Jackson 5 remix album. And they reach out to see if he wants to remix one of the Jackson 5 songs. And he's like, fucking of course I do. So he puts all of his umph, everything he's got into remixing this song. It gets put out on this album of Jackson 5 remixes. And it, it doesn't really do anything. He says, The album dropped the remix suite. It got a ton of play, but my cut didn't get a lot of shine because it was overshadowed by all these top artists and producers like Akon and Stargate and Wayne Wilkins. So he's like, yeah, that makes sense. I was just like a new DJ at the time. And these guys were big DJs at the time. So my cut was just there. It was an honor just to be asked to participate. Then we flash forward to another remix opportunity. They're putting out a Michael Jackson remix album and they ask him to remix a song. And he's like, fucking, of course, this is the greatest. But this is when his DJ career has really taken off. So he's so busy. He's traveling a lot. And he doesn't have time to really sit down and remix this song and so he like delivers a shit version of it and then they ask him to redo it and he's like fuck I was so embarrassed then he redid it and then it was good I guess I don't know I think it was he is not good at gassing himself up he's really good at telling you when something didn't quite work out and how he's actually okay with it that's just how things go and so reading this book I was like very unaware that he had ever had any successes
1: And I think if I knew he was successful going in, I would have liked this book more because I do appreciate how honest he is about all the failures along the way. Yeah. I do think that that is helpful to hear. But reading
0: it, if you don't know his career that well, you're like, has he only ever failed? I don't know. I guess it's like a catch 22 because if he had been gassing himself up too much, listening to a DJ gas up their DJing skills, I would have been like, shut the fuck up, Steve.
1: Because, you know, I don't respect DJing. I know. So he does this remix and Joe Jackson himself comes and ends up liking it, which is, I guess, his small wink to the reader that it was a good remix because if Joe Jackson likes it. But then he has this funny quote about Joe Jackson. He goes, in a lot of ways, from the stuff I'd read about him and heard about him, he reminded me of my own father. When you read the Jackson family lore, you can see a lot of similarities. He was tough on his kids, a no bullshit type, a real hard charger. He even looked like my father.
0: I mean, he was tough on his kids in a way that,
1: could harmed them irrevocably yeah i don't know that like a no bullshit type is what i'd call someone who like beat you with a bell and forced you into entertainment (laughs) but sure who like locked you in a basement until you got your dance moves right no bullshit I will also give him this. He's like, how could I have remixed Thriller? Quincy Jones made the original. What was I going to be better than Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson? I'm like, that is true. That is a good point. And that's my question about remixes. That's what I said to you in the car the other
0: day, where I was like, making a really good remix seems really hard because for a song to be a hit, the original version is already really good. So what are you going to do that's going to make it also really good? That's hard. To make a hit song twice? A hit song hittier. So then he's in high school and... He lives a pretty like innocent life bopping around in the suburbs. And then this older boy named Mike, who's known as like the bad kid, gives him and his friend acid and they just hold it in their pocket for a little while. They're like, all right, this is crazy. They they call it funny paper. They're like, they don't know it's acid, but they know it's something. And eventually he just takes the whole dose, which he was supposed to split with his friend by himself and spends an entire night tripping balls. And he's like, I never want to experience that again. So then he just goes straight edge.
1: He's in Catholic school at the time. So he like sees hell and he comes out being like an avid believer of God and fearer of hell. So because he's not literally straight edge, he's Catholic. Something to think about. The whole thing came about on the back of this school fuck
0: up. They call Mike the school fuck up. Mike trying to sell us a hit of acid, something that was actually bad for us by telling us it was good and harmless and fun. And then it ended with me dead awake thinking of the nuns back in Catholic school selling us something that was actually good for us by trying to scare us into believing that we would dwell in an everlasting hellscape if we didn't buy in. That's an interesting
1: parallel. So then he goes to a couple of Christian hardcore shows and he becomes obsessed with it. He says, going to those straight edge hardcore shows, that became my scene, my thing, my lifeline. It's only now revisiting the evolution that I can see the poetry in it, you know. Only now that I can understand the journey I was on, the way the asses spoke to me, the way these songs spoke to me, the way the shards of my Catholic school education spoke to me, even the labels that attach to the names of my favorite band spoke to me.
0: Yeah, he gets into the hardcore scene, then he adopts the straight-edge lifestyle, and he identifies with this
1: for a while. I think eventually he drops the religious aspect of it, yes. but he's very married to the hardcore straight-edge principles. Yes. <laughs> this chapter is called I'm a Person Just Like You. I believe it. I never for a second. So this next chapter is sort of
0: about his evolution of music interest. So at first he was only into the music his older brother gave him because that's just kind of every younger siblings evolution is you listen to what your sibling listens to and his brother was really into mod music. But he says first music I heard that felt to me like it could be my music where the artist seemed to be speaking to me through me was rap. I know I wrote earlier that I was into my brother's mod records and I was but that was his music. He starts to really identify with rap music and he really likes that it sets him apart. He's really into Eazy-E
1: and W-A. He feels that they represent the way he feels like angry and alone, like the underdog. But then he says, rap was my first crush, but I could never get close to it. Always believed that the music wasn't meant for me. I was put off a little by the lyrics. When he finds this like Christian hardcore music, he's like, all right, this could be my thing. And then when he finds just straight edge hardcore music, he's like, this
0: is it. He says, I finally realized I could listen to rap, but I couldn't live there. You know, first time I heard some straight edge hardcore, though, I was hooked. Thought I'd found a place for myself at fucking last.
1: It was just very different from the message at the heart of the rap music I'd been into, which was all about lifting yourself up and doing right by you. Maybe a little bit about your you and your boys looking out for each other. So now I went out and I copied down a whole new mess of lyrics, preaching about living clean, respecting the environment, and promoting animal rights issues. So then him and his friends
0: start a band. He says they got really into just, like, making noise. This girl he liked, they played outside her
1: window. And she was like, oh, that was you. That was very bad. Yeah, they were awful. They were just doing, like, concerts, he called them, in his friend's living room. And he's like, it was different than a practice because parents were there they named their band after one of their teachers very leonard Skinner of them It was very cute though so then his life has changed when his friend dana tells him you can go buy a task scam four track recorder which has really met the genesis of my work as a producer so he goes and he asks his mom for money and at this point he takes time to explain that he didn't have any allowance money really or he did but it was very little and that this idea that his dad was paying for whatever he wanted is just not true even though clearly in high school It sounds like he does okay. It doesn't sound like he ever wanted for much. He's no different than any other high schooler who doesn't have a job. But like, yeah, your dad wasn't paying your rent, but he was paying the mortgage of the free house you lived in. You were just a high schooler who lived at home, didn't have a free credit card, but your mom would pay for your shit. I mean, he asks
0: for this recorder and she's like, I don't think you need it. And he's like, no, I really do need it. And she was like, oh, okay, let's get it.
1: (laughs) So he gets it. He records his first ever song where he plays all of the instruments and he's so fucking excited and his friends are like, you did it, you did it. He runs to his bandmate's house and he's like, listen to what I played. And they're all like, this is the worst thing we've ever heard. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I know, I know, it's bad. So then they're like, well, we'll play the instruments we know how to play and re-record it for you. And he was like, oh, interesting. So
0: he kind of gets edged out of his own band for being really bad at playing music,
1: but he has an ear for music. He's like a huge part of the scene. He goes to all the shows and he takes a lot of pride in the fact that the bands recognize him. He knows all the lyrics. Yeah, he's really into collecting
0: records from indie labels. So a lot of them will number every record. And he was obsessed with having every single record from every single indie label in town. I will say this is one of those things where it's like, he's like, my dad didn't bankroll my life. And it's like, I don't know that many other high school kids that could just buy every single record they ever wanted.
1: Yeah, where was that money coming? <laughs> like from? you're buying
0: dozens of records. Anyway, so he's really into e Records, which is based in Santa Barbara. So he goes to UC Santa Barbara to be near this little pocket of the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And he ends up getting an internship at E-Bulletin Records. They have a zine called Heart Attack, and he like gets to write some reviews for Heart Attack. And he's like, it was the coolest fucking thing, getting to see my initials in my favorite zine. And then there is this DIY venue called the Pickle Patch in Santa Barbara that is just his apartment, the guys from eBulletin, a couple of their other friends. It's literally just an apartment. They throw shows in their living room and call it a
1: venue. It looks like it fits like 30. It's the Pickle Patch. It's a vegan co-op. And he says very quickly, the Pickle Patch became one of the most important music venues on the West Coast. Some people compared our rep in the music business to places like the Roxy in Los Angeles or CBGB in its funky, frantic heyday in New York or 94 Gilman in San Francisco. It was the place to be where music happened okay
0: do you think this could possibly be true if anyone is familiar with this scene please let us know because it feels like it was probably cool and people had heard of it like it had a reputation but it wasn't
1: cbgb's i just want to know how a venue that only fit 30 people could be well
0: especially considering the fact that i've very much heard of the roxy and cbgb's and i've never heard of the pickle patch same same so
1: it doesn't feel like it's on par with the pickle patch i also want to point out I ended up majoring in women's studies, which exposed me to all kinds of critical and creative thinkers and activists and turned me on to philosophy and literature.
0: So he also starts managing bands. Bands would come through the pickle patch. And he has this one band that he goes on a Japanese tour with. And he finds out his mom low-key paid for the whole band's plane ticket to Japan. He's like the hardcore way. We just slept on couches. No one really knew how anything came together. And it's like, well, yeah, because you you had someone low-key in the background just paying for it. I'm not saying it's wrong that that happened. It's just really funny that he doesn't understand that that
1: is something. So he's at the pickle patch. He's very much becoming part of the scene. A quote that comes up three or four times in this book is that he's like, I didn't start the pickle patch, but I very much helped it along. Yeah. I do believe it's a hype man. It does seem like... If you had an idea and he was free, he would help you put up all the signs. I think he was like very involved. He was an involved guy. He loved to be. A, he loves to be a part of something. I- but I don't think he's necessarily a genius. I think he's someone who's happy to get involved and happy to stay the course. Yes, but it doesn't seem like he has any like innate talent that is incredible and awe-inspiring no there was nothing that was like shining through that really told you like this guy is gonna be somebody neither musically neither as a businessman like in no way did any of these things seem to be groundbreaking yeah but he did love to be involved and for that i give him credit me too and he loved to like take something and do whatever he could with it So one of his Pickle Patch friends starts a music label and he has inspired. So he starts his own music label. I was 19. I called the label Dim Mac, a martial arts term that translates to touch of death. So he signed one of his friends that he has a lot of belief in. He splits the cost with some other producing duo. They produce 800 vinyls. I don't think they make a dollar on him. He kind of breaks
0: even on almost everything, he says. He says he was just kind of treading water. He also, like, takes a lot of care in the details because he had spent so much time obsessing over every record off of an indie label. He really got in the details on them, and he wanted to put a quote on each release. The first one, Dim Mac number one, he writes a quote from his father. If you're afraid of dying, you're afraid of living. Wasn't something he ever said to me, but I'd seen it in an article, and it made an impression. He like wants his father's approval so badly and his dad is just like doing his own thing.
1: You can feel the tension in these pages. It's the kind of tension that I don't think he's aware of. Yeah. That's what's stressful about reading this is I'm just like, oh, you have never seen yourself in the mirror emotionally. Not once. So then he gets really into having a label and he says, now that I have my own label, I was constantly on the prowl for new bands, always on the lookout for the next big thing. It's the same with my work as a DJ. Now you have to be just a little ahead of the trend so you can spot what's coming and shine just the right amount of light on it just at the right time. And then he goes, here's something that I love in the early days of dim Mac. People were doing vinyl presses on different colors. He goes, I looked back at that very first vinyl press I ever did. And what was half of the stack in wait for it? A fresh shade of baby blue, almost like a pastel. Are you fucking kidding me? Dim Mac number one on blue vinyl. See how it all ties in. I was like, I don't know if you're straight edge anymore, dude, because this is like the highest high school shit I've ever heard in my life. I just don't think that that's that crazy. I can't believe that nowhere in this book does he say, I don't know if the blue I see is the blue you see. And I guess we'll never know. Don't you feel like that had to be cut from here? Another thing I can't believe
0: is in heres 9-11. (laughs) 9-11.
1: You guys, 9-11
0: is a drop, an emotional national coming together. (laughs) So he was in New York for 9-11, albeit uptown and fast asleep.
1: There's nothing quite so heartbreakingly blue as the bluebird sky that kisses Manhattan on the morning of September 11, 2001. He didn't know. He wasn't awake for it. But yeah. So basically on 9-11, he was in New York City sleeping at his dad's apartment uptown it is my father's assistant Tashi who finally finds me he comes into my father's room to look for something the noise wakes me up he says oh my goodness Stephen you are here we've been looking for you
0: everyone knew he was in New York but didn't know where he was luckily he was just sleeping on the Upper East Side
1: (laughs) he calls his sister Devin to make sure she's okay she's She's on a tour bus with Lenny Kravitz (laughs) her boyfriend at the time she's like yeah we're getting out of here and so what does Steve Aoki do on 9-11 one of the worst terrorist attacks America's ever experienced thousands dead People in crisis, smoke everywhere. A day a lot of people did not know what to do, he ran straight towards the tower. <laughs> he got out of his apartment and he ran as far downtown as the police would let him.
0: So he ran downtown. He ends up meeting up with some friends in Union Square. One of them has a camera. He's like, I need to take this. He goes back down towards the towers and just starts interviewing people and he's
1: like, I think that this should be a documentary. It never ends up becoming one. But I started to grab people in the street and ask them to talk to me. I'm sorry. Imagine your life flashes before your eyes. A plane has crashed into a building. People are dying. Horror's unknown. And Steve Aoki is in your
0: face with a camera being like, I have a content idea.
1: And then the worst part, he goes, I asked what they had seen, where they had been. I talked to cabbies stuck in gridlock traffic for two days. I talked to people this way, never face to face, always through the camera for weeks and months. They interview people about where they were on 9-11. I am not a DJ yet, but I
0: suppose I am a DJ in my bones already. I'm trying to find music in the face of madness to create art from the insights of others. I do not have the words to express myself, so I am. Tapping the souls of these wretched strangers, hoping they might give me a voice to what I cannot
1: imagine. Together, my friend and I will conduct dozens of interviews. We will apply for a grant. We will speak to Howard Zinn. Rest in peace, the noted historian. We will travel to interview Noam Chomsky, Alice Walker. We want to hear from the cabbies and activists and citizen soldiers and agents of change. And then he goes, we will assemble hours and hours of recording, but I will never look at them. My friend and partner will never look at them. The project will be abandoned. Um... What? Rome Chomsky and Alice Walker, you got their time and then you never even saw what you made. Don't tell people that, bro. Don't tell Take people Take that, that to the grave. I cannot imagine being like, you don't understand. I made everybody share their trauma with me, but it was actually too much for me to even bear. It is a place to put our sadness is all. Like, don't loop Noam Chomsky into your sadness. Surely don't <laughs> loop the people who had experienced it into your sadness. You were asleep. You had no idea it happened. Well, don't insert yeah. yourself and then be like, actually, this was a lot of drama.
0: <laughs> and surely it is a place to store the frighteningly blue sky that long ago September morning, a sky I never really saw for myself straight on and could only capture on videotape as I pointed my friend's camcorder
1: this way and that. Steve Aoki sat down and said, how can I make this about me? He didn't even finish the project. Then, you know, he graduates from college. He's like keeping at Dim Mac. He's trying to send people to his label. He's hustling everywhere he can. He's putting together parties. He's very much just hanging out, doing whatever he can. He knows so many people. I think he is very connected and in the network. Well, he's and always hanging out. I don't know if I want to say hustling, but I think he is always trying to get things done. He, if you have an idea, he's like, yeah, let's try it. He's happy to put forth effort. So at one point he becomes like a tour manager. And literally an agent from the office goes, dude, we need you off the road. You suck at this. <laughs> he was right. But what I didn't suck at was finding these acts way ahead of the major labels and propping them up in my own DIY N D way.
0: I think he has an ear for cool shit. He's like so obsessive about the scene that I think he just hears everything first. And he's like, everything was my discovery because I heard everything
1: first. So during this time period where he's trying to get his label off the ground, he's trying to get honestly everything in his life off the ground. He's mostly just on the ground. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> a ground guy. <laughs> Ground guy is sitting on the ground at a bar called The Three Clubs. And then, and the bartender named Callie DeWitt, who I think must be successful now.
0: Yeah, maybe. So Callie DeWitt is like, you should come DJ here one time. I'm trying to start this night called B-Sides where everyone just comes and plays their favorite B-Sides or whatever. So he goes and he DJs. He has a bunch of like weird records and Callie is like, that'll be fun. And then it turns out that's not that fun. People like don't like a DJ who isn't playing songs they've
1: heard of. And People is me. (laughs) I do think he says later, it would have been a while before I figured out that the job of a DJ is to help people have a good time, not to amuse themselves by cranking the volume on their cherished records to play what people want to hear. I respect that he came to that realization enormously. He DJs just because his friend asked him to. He sucks at it. But he gets a little itch. He catches the bug. And so he starts trying to like get better and better. He's DJing anywhere they'll let him do it. He's like, it didn't even occur to me that I should have probably been getting paid this whole time. I'm like, actually, it sounds like you absolutely should not have been getting paid. Yeah, it sounds like you were bad at it. He gets one paying gig finally. He gets $75 to DJ at a bar. He had to rent $100 worth of equipment in order to DJ in the first place. And so he goes to the bar owner at the end and he's like, hey, buddy, it cost me $100 to come here. Can I get $100? And the guy goes, no, you sucked. Next time I'm only paying you 50 <laughs> But I guess people keep giving him opportunities to come. I do wonder if he's the kind of guy who had a ton of friends. So it's like in the same way if you have like a guest bartender or something, you're like, It's not really about the music, but it is about the fact that you have 19 friends that'll come drink on a Monday with you.
0: Yeah, and I also think that he was trying to get better. He says, I got better as the night went along. Each time out, I'd discover something new, some new technique or trick of the trade. And here on this first paying gig, I finally had my song selection down. So, like, he is trying to get better. Like, he knows he's bad and he wants to be a good DJ. The record label is still a big thing for him, but he's like... I can promote my record label if I play my record label's records at DJ gigs. If I can be a big DJ, I can be big at other
1: stuff, too. Also, it's like, why not? It seems like he was just hanging out at bars listening to music anyway. Might, might as well hang out at a bar and play the music. Yeah. So one of these nights, he's out playing, and the MC is about to bring him up, and he goes, what's your name? He said, I had this cool song queued up that I was going to open with called Millionaire featuring Andre 3000. And he's like, what did you want to call yourself? And he goes, I'm obsessed with this line from the song called Mama, I'm a Millionaire. And he's like, I want to be called Mama Millionaire. The MC looked at me like I was brainless, said, yo, that's no dude's name. You can't be Mama Millionaire. You should be Papa Billionaire. He's like, I didn't like the sound of that. So then he came up with Kid Millionaire. And so he gets brought up as Kid Millionaire. And he goes, it didn't occur to him that if he was successful, which he ultimately ends up being successful, and he's like put on the front of a magazine that when people found out he was the literal heir to Benny Hanna, people weren't going to think it's so funny. For your DJ name to be, like, Mr. Big Inheritance. (laughs) He literally was a kid millionaire. What a funny thing to not recognize. Because he doesn't think of himself as a rich kid. He just thinks of
0: himself as a kid who had what he wanted, but not... What if I was, like, ironically,
1: I'm private school privilege? Yeah, that's (laughs) literally what it is. And it never dawned on me that I was like, wait, but that's a joke. I don't really have private school privilege. (laughs) Like, it's just so specifically what he is. How could you not have put it together? Whatever. I guess the optics back in the day, people didn't
0: really think about getting found out. I guess he like never really saw his dad. And so it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. He was like, what do you mean people are going to find out? My dad's a millionaire. Oh, my God. I have a millionaire dad. I forgot.
1: Also, I guess in Newport Beach where he grew up, everyone else was white, but everyone was equally rich. It's definitely like a swanky neighborhood. Before Google, how could anyone have found out they weren't going to go to the library and check out a book on Mr. Hanna? <laughs> I don't think it just was something it even occurred to him. Yeah to hide or to
0: brag about like he was just like it just is what it is I don't really think about it anyway so he's finding himself as a DJ he says I was more of a curator back then a trend spotter a tastemaker I had the music part down but I was still finding my way on the technical side but then he like meets up
1: with this guy Harmar superstar (laughs) (laughs) My eye landed on Har And I did not know What syllable was coming next The entire time I read it Frankie and the Harmar Superstar Were the main DJs (laughs) of this party Called Fucking Awesome And they With two guys Mike Piscatelli And Jason Dill Who had a streetwear brand Called Fucking Awesome And so they had these Thursday night parties And basically he's like Can I help hand out flowers And get the word out And they were like Yeah sure What did I say Flowers Let me give a flower to my friends and tell them to come to the show. Wouldn't that be effective?
0: Yeah. If someone on the street gave me flowers and was like, I'm having a show, I'd be like, I'm fucking there.
1: And so the fucking awesome party becomes, I guess, literally fucking awesome. And he's like, it was homemade, homespun, bare bones. It was authentic. I wasn't thinking in any kind of scheming way, like, how great would it be to have a venue to break our Dim Mac artists in? The party became great. People really knew about it. They'd come through. And what a great way to promote your new artists. It became known for breaking new artists. And it was a great place for him to break his new artists. Yes. And he goes, here again, I want to stress that fucking awesome party wasn't my deal. It had been going on before I got there. I didn't start it. I didn't name it. But once I signed on, I kind of helped it along. Okay. I do think that he's just like afraid of people thinking that he's taking credit for these
0: projects. I think that this is him being like, I know that someone is going to read this book who was there and they're going to be mad at me for saying it was my thing.
1: It's hard to tell if it's him taking credit where he doesn't deserve any or him making sure nobody gives him extra credit. This sounds like what you would say if there was nothing quantifiable that you could put your finger on, but you're like, I was there a lot. So I have to have something to do with it.
0: I don't think it's about Trying to take extra credit. I think it's the fear of looking like he's taking too much credit from someone who was there. The way it's worded is for someone who was in the room during those parties, he doesn't want them to
1: be like, I'm sorry, how is he describing this? Because that's not accurate. But then he does make it his own thing. So eventually he gets a different venue and the fucking awesome Thursday becomes Dim Mac Tuesday, which apparently is a huge deal. Yes. The Party Boys confirmed that this was a legendary party in L.A. More on that later. And it was in this old movie theater called Cinespace. The party exploded, became the most pop and indie party in L.A. We had big time bands coming. Interpol, The Shins, The Killers, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs. Kanye West started coming through. Everyone cool was in there. He also says that this happened to
0: collide with the era that DJs started moving more front and center at a party. If you look at it now, a lot of clubs, the DJ is just up in the middle. And I don't think that that was very common. And so he said it became a lot more personality based. There was a lot more showmanship involved in DJing
1: starting around this time. And I think because of the way the space was already built, they had to have the DJ booth front and center. Yeah. So that really did change things. The party went on for 10 years. I mean, it does sound cool as hell. Yeah, it sounds fine. I'm just kidding. It sounds cool. So he also talks about meeting DJ AM. More on this later. He pairs up with his friend Matt colin And I do think he's helping him elevate his DJ career. So this is one of the first times he starts getting paid. He gets a gig for the Super Bowl after party in 2006. And that's his first legit gig, he feels. As Ashley said, he meets up with DJ AM, who was like the first famous DJ, it seems. Like I said, he
0: has this other line. He says, I was DIY all the way, self-made all the way, figuring it out in what ways I could, holding all these moving parts together with grit and scotch tape. Like he was, but I also don't know what was that hard about it. He definitely wasn't
1: making money. and I. He definitely wasn't making money, but that's like the privilege that we have of like... When you know you have something to fall back on, when you're like so many degrees away from like homelessness or being truly out on your own, you can say it's fine if I don't save any money. It's fine if I don't pay back college debt because...
0: Right. Like I can take a risk for a couple of years because yeah. if something goes wrong,
1: I'm not fucked. Yeah. He doesn't really recognize that. But he does recognize that people hate that his name is DJ Kid Millionaire, so he starts... Trying to soft launch Steve Aoki.
0: Eventually, I was able to drop the stage name and just do the thing as myself. Wherever this DJ thing was going to take me, it was going to take me as I was.
1: And then we get to one of the weirder drops in the whole book. It is World Autism Awareness Day. The White House is blue. The Empire State Building is blue. The Eiffel Tower is blue. So then he goes on to talk about how autism's main color is blue. Autism awareness. But I don't, I I don't, don't. think he's autistic i like googled it i couldn't find any evidence that he's like on the spectrum or that he's come out as a neurodivergent person so i kind of don't know why this is in here i wonder if he literally looked outside of his apartment and the empire state building was blue and he was like what are the fucking chances and he like googled it and he was like oh my god yeah it really just
0: doesn't connect to anything else in this book i mean i guess it connects via the
1: color blue but i read it very early in the morning and i was Whenever something doesn't make sense, I'm like, is it me? Am I too dumb? And I have to say, almost never has it been me. It's Steve Aoki just threw this in here for no reason. Yeah. He goes, we're all the same in the end. We are all on the same spectrum. We are all blue with compassion for the suffering of these families. Yeesh. I don't think that's the language we use around autism anymore. I
0: don't think it's even close. Anyway, so then he talks about his father's death, holding his hand as his dad died, how it brought all the siblings together, all the branches of the family tree, all the trees within the tree patch that his dad
1: grew. So, at this point, Mr. Benihana is on his <laughs> third wife. That doesn't count like Devin's mom, that doesn't count the secret sister's mom. This is just the third wife. He goes, So his kids filled the hospital room. Always his third wife, Kiko, was the kind of supervising presence deciding who could get in to see him and when. She ran the show. It had been that way for a while, going back to before my father was sick. It used to be that she kept me from the house, kept me from seeing my father, kept us from connecting. On the Hanna front, she kept us from the boardroom, from the kitchen, from the front of house.
0: It felt to me like the only way she could feel secure in her place by his side was to keep the rest of us from his side. But then in the end, she knew she couldn't keep us from seeing him. That's good that on his deathbed, she was like,
1: all right, I'll ease up the reins. But then he tells this crazy story that like one of the last nights that his father's alive, they're all there late one night when Kiko stood abruptly and announced that she was going to leave to walk her dog, Mugi. It took us all by surprise, her standing to leave like that just then, my father most of all. He wasn't speaking then, had his little notepad that he kept by the bed. He reached for it. We all stood as he scratched out the message to Kiko, don't go. For whatever reason, Kiko had it in her head that she needed to step out for a beat. She said, your children are here, I need to walk the dog. He grabbed the pad again, stay, but she was gone. He goes, we all deal with our sadness in our own way, I guess. And maybe Kiko's way was just a step away, you know? Or maybe she was giving us all some space, taking her own time to breathe. It was something to notice. That's all. I love that. It was something to notice. That's all. I don't have a conclusion. Just wanted to throw that out there. But she was my father's wife. He had chosen her. He knew who she was and he had chosen her. Honestly, that's a lesson that you and I could both stand to learn. And she was free to grieve in her own way to her own time. I
0: mean, it's it's a lesson he says. It's a lesson he says, and it's something that we should listen to. I'm bad at agreeing to the people that my friends choose.
1: I mean, I don't know that Kiko is a shining light for proving that they're right.
0: We don't know. All we know about Kiko
1: is those, like, three pages. Kiko could have been a shining star. I've never heard of a shining star that keeps a man's children away from him on his deathbed, but (laughs) I guess we all shine differently. (laughs) Like I said, he chose her, and you're being judgmental. That's true. I should stop being judgmental. This podcast should cease to exist.
0: (laughs) So then the dad dies. He has a pretty hard time with it.
1: He also says at this point he cried to his dad, which is the first time he had ever cried to his father before. After
0: his dad's death, he talks about the way he sees his dad and all of his siblings. He talks about seeing his best traits. He sees them in each of his siblings. But then he says, me, I like to think I'm the DJ of all that Rocky Aoki DNA. I've got a little bit of all these character traits running through me, and I try to sample them all. I live each day trying to honor the man that he was, the man I hope to become. It's so funny to be like, All of my siblings have one shining trait. I represent all of
1: him. I think to say in my sister Grace, I see my father's selflessness. And he's like, I know you might think it's weird for me to call my father selfless, but he was in the hospitality business, right? I
0: mean, in my sister Echo, I see my father's heart. Yeah, he could be hard on us kids. And he didn't always treat the women in his life, our mothers, with the respect they deserved but underneath his tough exterior he was a generous soul he was good to the people who worked for him good to people in need and echoes cut
1: the same way sorry i want to finish the thing he says about the hospitality goes whatever valves he might have shut off in his personal life whatever ways he might have struggled with issues of intimacy or fidelity he opened those spigots wide when it came to his work it's not selfless to have a booming business i don't know how to explain to you it's not selfless to be a very gracious host at a restaurant where people are paying to eat anyway the next drop is about jeans He has a favorite pair of jeans, and you'll never guess what color those jeans are. Can I guess? You can guess. White. Ashley. (laughs) Blue.
0: (laughs) He does break the straight edge thing because the people around him are not straight edge anymore, I think. Yeah. Like, in college, all of his friends were straight edge. Everyone at the Pickle Patch was straight edge, hardcore. Then he moves to L.A., he's DJing. I think people are drinking and he thinks that that looks fun. Can't say why, can't say how. I was still deep in the hardcore scene, totally immersed. All my friends, that's what they were into. But the idea I had allowed myself to become defined by the fact that I didn't do drugs or drink alcohol didn't make sense to me anymore. I will say it does just seem like he like thought it actually looked fun. So then he starts drinking a lot, especially after his dad died. He was drunk often and this becomes a problem in his life. He said, I'd gone from never touching a drop of alcohol to feeling like I needed it to keep me going. It was a dark time in my life and in the life of my family as I was diving deeper into the DJ scene. I started to feel all this pressure. Just to be clear, it was a self-inflicted kind of pressure. But as I was playing to bigger and bigger crowds, it felt like I was really pushing it. We see this with a lot of people. When you're very lonely, you're on the road, you're working really hard, you need a release. People become very dependent on alcohol.
1: Also, if, if you're at parties, if like the only time you're not alone is when you're at a party, it's hard to then isolate yourself further by being like, "I'm the only sober one here." Or like, how do you connect with other people? It's very easy.
0: So I guess around the time his dad died was when DJ AM and Travis Barker were in their plane crash. Mm-hmm. So DJ AM had gotten sober and was like a beacon of sobriety for a long time. But after the crash, he had to get on painkillers because he had been in a plane crash. Yeah. Even though he took measures to not relapse and to be controlled on his painkillers. It didn't work. A year after he relapses, DJ AM overdoses and passes away. I mean, talking about the plane crash, I will say this is another line that feels deeply unnecessary. He says, AM was shaken by the incident. Travis, too. He swore off flying after that. Their friends were affected as well. I just played a show with the two of them, so I started to think it could have been me on that plane. It wouldn't have been him on that plane, but also... Of course, they were shaken from the crash. They were on the brink of death and everyone they were with also died. That'll shake you. But then DJM overdoses and he says, I was devastated, flattened, really. We were like brothers, the two of us. And I felt so fucking guilty that I hadn't been there for him in the months leading up to the plane crash
1: and in the months after. Ultimately, a year later, DJ A. M. has an overdose and dies. And he says, as soon as I heard the news of Adam's death, as soon as I ran out of tears, I swore off drinking. Cold stop. It was the only way I knew to get my head right. I didn't swear off alcohol entirely because I'd still take a sip in celebration or on a special occasion. What I was able to chase immediately was the urge to drink, the feeling that I needed to drink to get by. That's what left me when DJ AM died. So now he only drinks celebratorily, I guess. And then he has one of the crazier lines in a book. (laughs) Long as I'm on it, I want to spend some time here on two other deaths that left me reeling. Two deaths that stand as reminders of
0: the knife edge we sometimes walk when we spend our lives on the road. So he talks about other famous people he knows that died. Chester Bennington, I guess he was very close to. Chester Bennington was the lead singer from Linkin Park. Yes. And then he talks about losing Avicii, who it actually doesn't sound
1: like he was that close to. Yeah. But they like ran in similar circles. Yes. Those two deaths hit him hard. Let me tell you something about Avicii. I heard Levels the other day at a bar and it changed my life. Ten years later, I'm like, this is the greatest song of all time. I was on the floor. I was pumping my fists levels to it it was incredible it was the high of my night so then he has a drop I am alone cue the fucking violins right I live in a big house play to big crowds live a big full life at the end of the day it sometimes feel like my life is empty and so then he talks about I guess he was married he was married to a woman named Tiernan she was a beautiful Australian blonde model they were together for five years he refused to slow down for her he says at one point that he's doing 250 shows a year which is like a lot a fucking lot. The only six weeks they really ever had together was when he had to get vocal cord surgery. And so they could hang out and they decided to get married. They get married in Hawaii. As soon as they get married, they're like, oh, this is not working. So they get divorced. Those idyllic days we spent in our apartment on the aptly named Hope Street in Los Angeles were forever out of reach. And so I'm back where I started alone. Wondering how is it that life can somehow pass you by when you're living large. I catch myself some nights crying on the floor of a far-off hotel room, wondering what my life will be like at 50, 60, 70.
0: So he talks about being lonely, how he doesn't have a family, and how it sort of inspired him to make sure he stays close with his siblings.
1: So he he talks about which siblings he's close to and which ones he doesn't talk to as much. But then he says this interesting thing about Devin Aoki. Yeah. In my low despairing moments, I catch myself thinking of my sister Devin and the choices she's made with her own life and career. It's easy to forget that there was a time when I was starting out and it was Devin who lived in the harsh light of celebrity. She was one of the top supermodels on the planet and I was known as Devin Aoki's older brother. Oh man, she was the shit. She was living the life I'm living now, but she had the courage and foresight to step away from it when the universe gave her a chance. She wasn't planning on starting a family, but when she got pregnant, she took it as a gift, a sign, a reminder of what was important. She'd always known she wanted a family and there it was, hers for the taking, so she grabbed it. I would love her book. I looked her up. She just has three kids and like a normal husband with a public, but under 5,000 followed Instagram. Man,
0: to have been like a huge model, almost like she started ramping up as a movie star and then just kind of was like,
1: never mind. And then he talks about how he wants a family. So he lives out in the desert in Vegas and he decided to like, import his family so we made all of his siblings who have partners and children move out to the desert with him he moved his mom out he got his older sister and her family and his mom to move out and a cousin and and a cousin and his family and he's like i'm trying to get everybody to come move out with us
0: so his mom and his sister and his sister's husband and children all lived in newport beach so instead of him moving to newport beach again he made them all move to vegas and i was like that seems a little fucked up but whatever
1: ashley yes you're a mother would you say that bug has any of your qualities
0: I would say definitely. I think one of the biggest things that we have in common is that we both love a treat.
1: We love treats here.
0: Sometimes you deserve a treat. And if you want to treat your pet, I would like to recommend Jiminy's. So Jiminy's is, I'll start with delicious and get back to that later. It's also a extremely sustainable treat. Cricket protein uses less water and land to produce and drastically eliminates greenhouse gas emissions versus traditional animal protein dog food. One bag of Jiminy's Cricket protein treats saves 220 gallons of water versus traditional animal protein treats. Also, back to the taste. Dogs go Crazy for it. Bug loses her gourd when I pull out some Jiminy's treats. The flavors, I'll tell you what, they make me consider trying a bite. I haven't yet, but like I said before, if you dared me, I probably would. They have flavors like blueberry, sweet potatoes, peanut butter, pumpkin. Does that sound good to you or no?
1: Delicious. <laughs>
0: It is easy to digest because cricket protein contains a fiber that is prebiotic, which supports a healthy gut in your dog. And it's good for dogs with food sensitivity and dogs with allergies because insect protein is considered hypoallergenic for dogs versus other allergy triggering proteins like beef, chicken, fish, soy. And in fact, veterinarians are using Jiminy's dog food in elimination diets to determine food allergies, which is something that I'm about to start with bug because her little tummy is not agreeing with something. Check out Jiminy's dog food and treats made with cricket protein, a sustainable superfood that is delicious, nutritious, and easy to digest for dogs. To learn more and save 25% on your first purchase, go to Jiminy's.com slash Worm25 and use the code Worm25 at checkout. That's Jiminy's, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S dot com slash Worm25 with the code Worm25. Now a little something for yourself. Treat your dog and then treat your erotic brain. (laughs) Spring fever is in the air with the smell of flowers and the sun shining down upon you. I am sure
1: you are feeling hot. I bet you want to get railed in a sundress, (laughs) as Twitter would say. And if there's no one there to rail you, why not rail yourself? explore
0: your inner desires and fantasies whether it's getting railed in a sundress or maybe just like a romantic dinner for two that escalates into a dinner for three (laughs) find stories that match your mood on dipsy dipsy is an app with hundreds of short sexy audio stories designed by women for women to rev you up they bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters no matter who you're into or what turns you on find stories about that intriguing coworker. Find stories about the pizza delivery guy. Stories about I don't know, Claire. Who are you thinking about?
1: I guess I was at one point thinking about a coworker, but no longer because my coworker is you, and I can honestly say there's never been sexual tension between us. <laughs> okay, but you have a coworker that you turned into a lover, and I bet you there's a story for that on yeah. Dixie. I should I should write for them.
0: You should write for them. You know, uh, the other day I was at the dog park and there was a a hot guy. I bet you there's a, a dog. dog. <laughs> A hot guy with a dog that Bug became great friends with. And I thought, someday we're going to be like like the 101 Dalmatians
1: family. Someday you're going to slob on that hot dog. <laughs> Save it for Dipsy, Claire.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you what. I have found some stories on Dipsy that I was not expecting to be my thing. But you have got to get in there and explore because there is something for everything. If you're already in the mood, Dipsy will take you further. If you need to get in the mood, Dipsy is So great to turn on and get yourself going. No matter what you are in the mood for, Dipsy has a little something for you. And for listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to com slash worm. com slash
1: worm. I'd like to dip nuts in Steve Aoki's face. Once you're done DJing on your <laughs> cooch, let's get back to You're this. a sicko and you're fired. You're fired from this podcast. That's an HR problem. I'm calling HR. Can I say? No, don't say yeah. cooch again. I was going to say that's completely fair. I'll see myself out. If we weren't at your parents' house right now, I would say you have to get out of here. But I wouldn't feel comfortable staying here without you. So Just you stay. I'll go sleep in the yard like the dirty bitch I am. Steve. Steve Aoki. Steve,
0: get us out of here.
1: Uh, It took me a while to find my voice as an artist. I'd been looking all along, all the way back to when I was a kid, trying to find my community, trying to think about what it was that made me like a certain band or remember a certain show. It had to do with the music, but it also had to do with something I couldn't always describe something vague, something ephemeral, something beyond explaining.
0: So he talks a lot about his artistic inspiration, the music that really got him going the people he went to see live that like just changed his opinion of how music should be performed. So he went and saw this French DJ and Daft Punk is another one that he was like, I can't believe the showmanship. He was like, okay, it's more than just spinning discs. You have got to get out there and be
1: the DJ that your audience needs. He like talks about this group called men's recovery project where they had a secret concert at 8am at a coffee shop where they just came down and ate cereal. And he was like, this is fucking art. I do think if you look at the Michael Jackson and everything, he does love a show. He sees a DJ as somebody who comes to entertain.
0: Yes. So he talks about going to Coachella in 2008 and seeing Justices set. He says it was abrasive, furious, unlike anything else. My emotions were on absolute fleek. And the takeaway for me was that our music could be presented in this disruptive way. And here I would finally started to think about electronic music as ours, as mine.
1: Fleek. That's so fleek of you. Fleek indeed. He actually tells this very funny story about the first time he went to Coachella in 2007. He played this side stage show and he had this great idea for how to make the performance more interesting to watch and he was going to cut out the name Aoki out of a bunch of wooden boxes and have like LED light up lights and he spent more than he was getting paid to do the show on this setup and then he realized that his set was in the middle of the day so the sun was super bright and nobody could see the lights and it was a complete waste. And I will say... I like that in this book, Steve cops to all of his failures. It makes me, yes. as, a, as a similarly permanent failure, feel less alone.
0: I mean, when is the last time you and I didn't spend more than we were making to fuck something up?
1: I wish I could say this <laughs> trip to Chicago, but probably not even this. I would say L.A. came dangerously close to us being thousands of dollars in the hole for almost nothing. <laughs> but it, it didn't. We, we succeeded. We, climbed but we out. came close.
0: <laughs> so he was working with this band that made this music video with cakes exploding. And he was like, wouldn't it be fun if during my set I had a cake when I played this
1: song? I just want to quote what he says in this music video about cakes exploding because it blew his mind just like eating cereal did. Okay. There was something about the powerful incongruity of exploding a cake, something we normally associate with feelings of happiness that was weirdly appealing, and I carried the images of those cake-battered faces for a long time after we made that video, the tug and pull between disaster and celebration. I'd always been into the combustion of two things that don't really go together, the yin and the yang of life, you know, and here it got me thinking how I might attach that tug and pull to my show, maybe find some way to get the crowd going and try to shake or shock them. Just the need to uh, intellectualize why an exploding cake is funny made me laugh. I liked it. The yin and yang of just enjoying something pure and then having to say combustion. (laughs) Anyway, so he brings
0: a cake to the show. He doesn't know what he's going to do with the cake. So he's just walking around with a cake and he's like, all right, this was a little goofy. It was not landing me just walking around with a cake. But then the audience starts chanting cake him, cake him, cake him. And he goes to cake. I'd never heard it used as a verb, but here it was. Here we were. And it just kind of happened. I held the cake in front of the headbanger's face and he kind of leaned into it. And the next thing I knew, he and his friends were going completely fucking nuts, eating the left behind pieces of cake, smearing it all over, just having a wild ass time. And thus the Steve Aoki caking was born. He starts bringing cakes to every show, caking the front row. People
1: go wild for it. The whole cake thing took off, but I caught some criticism for it. And he said, the criticism grew to the point where some prominent promoters wouldn't book me if I insisted on throwing cakes. Some of them put it to me straight, no cakes or no show. Others were a little less clear. They simply didn't book me. So what did I do? I caved at first, not because I was afraid to lose out on these big stages, but because I started to think maybe the naysayers were right. Maybe it was a little childish for me to be throwing cake in people's faces. Maybe it did take away some of the integrity we wanted to see associated with the music we loved. They say it was juvenile, stupid, corny, and on some level I could see their
0: point. It was all of that, but it was also so much more. It was a point of connection between me and my fans, a
1: weirdly intimate connection that drew us together like a group hug. And so he says, things have changed now. I'm cool with most of my fellow DJs. I'm cool with most of the promoters and the festival organizers. As I write this, we're rebuilding some of the relationships that were a little bit broken over these cakes. What is going on? What happened with these cakes? But the great lesson here for me was never to make a decision based on someone else. This, to me, was really such an illuminating, hilarious story, because this, like the seriousness of the way that people responded to these cakes at something that I would overall call frivolous. Like the idea that some people are like, "You're not respecting the integrity of this EDM show at Coachella. Like, how dare you fucking throw a cake when we're all rolling?" Like we're we- all on Molly because this is our art. <laughs> It does show, like, what in your life do you take way too fucking seriously? And I think as comics, we're definitely guilty of that, of being, like, very gatekeepy and, like, the seriousness of the art of what fart jokes. Who gives a shit? Dude. First couple of years, I only threw one or two cakes each
0: night, but there's been a general progression. And when I do the math, it comes out to about 15,000 cakes, give or take a couple
1: slices. And he thinks he tore a rotator cuff throwing too many cakes. He said he ultimately wrote a op-ed about it called To Cake or Not To Cake. It's not exactly a question for the ages, but it kept me up nights. I'll say that. I believe it.
0: I believe he lost a lot of sleep over trying to figure out whether or not he should be caking.
1: So then he talks about all the time he spends engineering songs and producing. He says everything that shine ain't always going to be gold. He says, remember, you can't engineer genuine. You can only be genuine. He talks about a couple songs that he was sure would be a hit that just flopped. And then songs that he... Thought would flop that ended up becoming hits he does not spend a
0: lot of time talking about the songs that become hits and i definitely left this book thinking he had never really had a hit me too i was like has anything not flopped because we're really focusing on a lot of the flops we really focus on the flops he also talks about his friendship with kanye which really kanye seems more west. like kanye west i think we should specify which kanye we're talking about yeah west <laughs> they have this kind of steve aoki would call it a friendship and collaboration i think kanye would be like Steve Aoki, remind me again. He's the guy who likes the color blue.
1: He seems to treat him like we treated Smarter Child on AIM, just like somebody you could text at any point that would definitely respond.
0: So they, like, kind of had talked about working with each other at one point. It never really amounted to anything. It kind of sounds like when they're at the same parties, they'd be like, we should work together. And then Steve Aoki would be like, we're about to work together. And Kanye was like, I say that to a lot of people. (laughs) And at one point, Kanye calls him on the phone and starts rapping lyrics to him. And Steve Aoki is like, this was the greatest gift anyone had given me. The fact that Kanye trusted me with these unreleased lyrics, the fact that he wanted to work on this project, just to have my ear on it. This is the most important thing that's ever happened. And I very much suspect that Kanye does this every day. I think Kanye probably called a hundred people with those lyrics and a few people answered the phone. I
1: mean, Steve says that he goes, Kanye is somebody who will meet you, be obsessed with you and be like, we have to work together. We have to collaborate. And then like four days later, he's completely forgotten.
0: Yeah. But he mentions the fact that Kanye trusted him and called him this one time a lot.
1: I think if Kanye called you on the phone, you would talk about it a lot, too.
0: I would. But I also feel like he knows other famous people and I don't. (laughs) Like if Kanye called me, I'd be like, that's the only time I've ever
1: talked to a famous
0: rapper on the phone.
1: That's not true. Remember that time you dated Travis Scott for a while? Oh, yeah.
0: I forgot about him. But other than that, he uses this story to sort of exemplify the development of projects. The lyric that Kanye had called him to run by him ended up not coming out in a song for a couple of years. So in his mind, he's like, oh, that was something Kanye had been developing and he finally found a place for it. And he goes, the deal with Kanye was just the example at hand, but it was a killer example. Here was a lyric he'd been working on for some years earlier coming back to me now with a completely different intention but that's how all true artists work right there is no such thing as a bad idea only an idea that isn't fully formed fully realized this is such matthew mcconaughey logic <laughs> like nothing is ever wrong things are only not right yet
1: i don't think that that's like a bad way to look at I it i don't
0: think that that's a bad way to look at it but it makes me laugh when it's coming from like rich dudes i'm always like fucking beautiful green light man
1: I guess I do feel like this book really is, like, if you were a DJ who had nothing but failures, it would make you feel better. Oh, no. I, like, kind of like Steve Aoki. I think he's, like, a sweet Like, I have a lot of jokes like that that I thought of, like, honestly, four or five years ago, and I just wasn't a good enough writer. And now, like, I rework those premises, and I can pull them off now. Yeah. I, like, weirdly like Steve Aoki. I just think everything he says is stupid. Definitely like a DJ Matthew McConaughey. Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, look, Matthew McConaughey is why I I quit my job, so...
0: (laughs) I will say also like I know I talk a lot of shit about DJs but people always say like the thing you hate the most is the thing that you are at your core. I think in my heart I'm a DJ. That's like the big thing I've been running from.
1: You would love to control the vibe. <laughs>
0: I know. That is
1: you do think you have better taste in music than everybody else. You do think that. Like, I
0: literally am coming to I like I I said that. That's what I, I, I said. Don't, I, know. I,
1: just, I don't know if you're kidding cuz I I'm not kidding. It's so true. You are a DJ. You're only a comedian because you're too afraid to be a DJ.
0: I know. Anyway, so then he gets back into his other remixes. He says, by this point, I'd remixed 30, 40 songs. A lot of them were never put out. And it all goes back to what I wrote earlier about how you never know how things will play. All you can do is grab the opportunities that come your way and try to grow from each one. Like that is true. But once again, after finishing this book, I was not aware that he had ever had a hit.
1: So then he talks about he does have a hit and it's like with Kid Cudi, he does a remix of Pursuit of Happiness that really blows up, but not for a couple of years. So he puts it out, nothing happens, and then it gets used in that movie Project X
0: and then it blows up.
1: Then he has this weird thing about how he tried to become MIA's manager. He like heard her and was like, this is something big. And he was just running around town trying to pitch her to record labels. And she already was represented in London and he ended up doing nothing. But he was just like, I I knew it. I called it. I heard MIA and I knew she was something. And again, he goes, obviously, I didn't do anything. But I like to think I helped her along. I like paved the way because he had been vouching for her all over town.
0: And then he talks about some other projects that he got kind of squeezed out of. And he goes, but that's how it goes sometimes, right? You set all these wheels in motion and they end up rolling away from you.
1: I do think he's like a master connector with no business acumen. Yeah. And no like legit talent. But I do think he like knows cool people and is involved with stuff. And like. And when he sees something he likes, he's like, how can I help
0: this? And he doesn't realize that that is not necessarily how business works. But
1: I think for people like us, that's nice. Like, if we met a Steve Aoki, we would take him up on it. Of course. If somebody was like, I really believe in what you guys are doing. I want to help you. I do think, like, a Steve Aoki would, like, run over town introducing us to somebody. And then that somebody, we would be like, okay, well, that's our person. Thank you, Steve. You can go home now. And then Steve would be like, another deal I got squeezed out of. So then we get to
0: another disaster chapter. Another drop. This one is the Vegas shooting. And once again, he is in town. He lives in Vegas. But once again, he was sleeping. Yeah, he was going to go to that festival, but he didn't. One he was thing tired. that Steve Aoki is known for, it's sleeping across town of a major American tragedy.
1: Again, he wants to go to the center of the storm. Instead, he calls his friend, who I would call maybe one of the bigger tragedies to hit America... Dan Blazarian, And he's like, Dan, what's going on? And Dan won't pick up the phone. Dan's in the middle of the shrapnel. So he's like, I can't get through to Dan, but Dan keeps putting up Snapchat stories. And so he's like, I'm keeping up with what's going on at this shooting via Dan's Snapchat stories. And I was like, well, you and probably the four million followers he has. I don't know how this is like a your story thing. Yeah. My story is literally Dan's Instagram stories.
0: And then he goes, From here we move into triage mode. Last night was about piecing together the puzzle of what was going down, about getting a head count on our friends, about looking inside the madness. This morning is about doing what we can. I call a doctor friend to see what's going on. He tells me local hospitals are low on blood, so I put the word out on social media. Later, I hear the lines to donate are eight hours deep, so I put it out there that that folks looking to give blood could use some water and some snacks. The city is broken and I am flattened, shattered. I am scrambling to do what I can. It feels like nothing, but it is everything.
1: No, it's nothing.
0: Unfortunately, it is nothing.
1: (laughs) Putting out Instagram stories is nothing. I do feel like especially when you're local, like if he was
0: in Europe on tour and he found out there was like a major tragedy happening in his city and like the most he could literally do from that point was throw money at it and post for awareness. I guess that is everything that he could have done. But he was in town. He could
1: have donated blood perhaps. So that's the last drop in the whole book. And I love that to him. Like the emotional drops of his life are 9-11, the Vegas shooting, a pair of jeans, his wife, <laughs> and autism awareness. So then we get to the last chapter, which was the weirdest chapter called <laughs> Unfuck the World. And it's about how in the wake of his father's death, he became absolutely obsessed with trying to stop aging and prevent death. And he used to take a cut of the proceeds from all of his shows and let the audience members vote on which charity it goes to. And he's like, the problem with that is people only ever wanted to donate to the most recent crisis. He's like, so now I've made the executive decision to put all of the money into the pursuit of immortality. He's put a lot of money into immortality. And I'm just like, I don't know that that's like an honorable thing to be honest also dude I'm sorry your dad died but this isn't the way to fix it by being like well now no one will die I'll spend all the money in the world and nobody will die
0: yeah it's all like this insane pseudoscience about how like the brain responds to color and how that can be linked to like disease and extending life (laughs) think about it when we are calm and peaceful when there is an overwhelming presence of blue in your environment it's stimulates deeper abstract thinking when our defenses are down there's no need to feel agitated or up against it or put ourselves at high alert it allows us to turn our thoughts and energies inward in a purely positive way so i guess like color theory keeps you alive longer
1: this is where his money's going now (laughs) i do not have all the answers when it comes to the workings of the human brain or how we might tap technology to help us live longer more productive lives god the last thing i want is to be more productive. I'm not even particularly productive now, but the idea that, like, I get to live an extra 30 years so I could work more, I feel just productive let enough. Let me die. Let me die. <laughs> truth is, I don't have any answers. That is the truth. But I'm learning what questions to ask. I'm learning what, that it takes money and a platform to bring about these pioneering breakthroughs and that these breakthroughs in a vacuum will be locked in a kind of theoretical limbo. We need to talk about this shit, understand this shit, embrace this shit. So we do what we can to keep the conversation going. And while we're doing that and figuring it all out, we might as well paint the walls blue. And that's where it ends. That is where it ends. I wonder if Steve Aoki will live forever. I'm sad that I'll probably die before I find out.
0: Well, should we welcome our DJ friends to help contextualize our new DJ friend, Steve Aoki? Yes, please. Welcome, Party Shirt.
1: Great. You guys, I am so excited to introduce some experts in the field of DJing. We have got DJ Duo (laughs) Party Shirt. Am I saying that right? You, You are. We've got X and Ivy. Yep. I keep on calling you
0: as a as a duo the party boys. Is that? Like That's what that. everyone says. <laughs> okay. Literally, like party people shorts.
3: yeah party shirts, party pants, Piesta party pants, boys. Okay, anything.
0: pants is not part of your guys' thing. No. But so. we do have
3: some killer pants.
0: Okay, next time we'll all coordinate yeah. pants as a foro will be the party pants yes (laughs) yes yes that's the group
2: name
1: so can you tell everybody how you guys met and like what your background is and why we're calling you in as experts on steve aoki
2: yeah so pretty (laughs) much ivy and i met uh 2016 at usc i I did not go
3: to usc just clarification
2: ivy was at music production school i was at sc studying business and my roommate at the time grew up with ivy best friends and so when i was getting into it he's like hey let me find you someone who actually knows what they're doing so they can teach you so you're not just watching YouTube tutorials and so me and Ivy met up and instantly we're just like hey let's just do this together you know we'll DJ some parties around USC and sort of see what happens we ended up about two two years after that getting booked for a gig in Chicago because we were doing it like as a hobby we came back from Chicago we're like we really want to pursue this you know and then so 2019 as I'm graduating we decided to start releasing music we move in together and we start getting booked in LA and there's not much of a house scene here compared to like the rap and hip hop scene. So the house scene's pretty much concentrated on the west side of Los Angeles, like Santa Monica and Venice. But we started getting booked there like two times a weekend. Like it was great. You know, all the top clubs, great spots. And then just as that's starting to sort of we make a name for ourselves in that small scene, COVID happens and then it was just sort of a mess. We tried to find this manager who was managing like our idols, these guys called the Martinez brothers. And he just like ghosted us just as he was about to sign us because COVID, it was a whole nightmare. So we were just lost. And then, so we start, you know, making music like more pop just to sort of like, well, like, okay, since we can't play dance music out, it's hard to get dance music streams. And so we make like pop disco music, like Dua Lipa, Doja Cat style stuff. I love them. Yeah. I love them. Love. <laughs> Lo- well, I'm still obsessed. And then, so we release that and then we use TikTok to promote that and that starts to gain some traction. And then, so we just start making videos to keep up, you know, when you get like a small following, you're like, okay, I want to keep this, you know? So we start making videos just to sort of keep it warm. And then while that's happening, while we're like in between releases, we start this Fact or Cap series that like just, you know, blew everything up that, you know, compared to like what we are doing. And then just for the past sort of, 12 months we've just been focusing on that. You sort of getting like we just sold this cookbook and then you sold
1: a cookbook? Yeah. Do you guys cook?
2: We do. We do Snackle cook, Yeah, It's one of our yeah. I mean, we cook like the we, average. If person you consider
3: cooks. dipping Skittles in Chick-fil-A sauce, yeah, cooking them we, cook. we definitely then we cook. cook. Okay.
1: Yeah, have yeah. a book of just dipping things that don't belong in other things. Correct.
2: Pretty much. Yep, yeah, dip, like dipping dogs.
1: I actually think there's a huge market for that. <laughs> so. I, I think <laughs> yeah. we
2: hope so. That's what they're betting on. And then we're working on this TV show thing. So now that everything That we've sort of done in digital. We've sort of like solidified what we want to do next with it. And it's just sort of a lot of waiting once you start getting into more traditional mediums. We're like, okay, now we want to concentrate back on the music 110%. So we have a music agent. We're starting to get booked more. We're actually, after this, we're filming a DJ set that we're going to post up. And then, yeah, and then we're starting to release on Spotify again. Because late last year, we got contracted to do a remix for the Black Eyed Peas, My Humps.
1: I love Humps. That's a great song.
2: Incredible song. And Humps Humps in
0: general.
1: (laughs) I feel like sometimes people say DJ and it's like a playlist and then sometimes people say DJ and they're like producing. Right. What is the spectrum there?
2: The thing pretty much these days is if you're a DJ, you have to be a producer. You know, sort of in the 90s when you're spinning vinyl, it wasn't really like that necessarily. Like you could be a big DJ and never have released a song. And then also in the UK, I see a lot of like... Big DJs that don't release any music, but they're still playing festivals, and people just know them as DJs. In the US, I couldn't name one big, big DJ except DJ Ruckus. He's a he's a right. big Vegas DJ yeah. that doesn't produce. So you sort of it's sort of like you have to be a producer to be a yeah. DJ here,
3: at least like top level. You okay, know.
0: and like and producing for people's albums fully or can it be like producing
1: remixes you're separate? you can
3: be producing whatever like it's just like why would someone go to a show like to see you play someone else's music I
1: mean that's a question I've always asked
3: <laughs> yeah which I mean like they're going to do that regardless cuz it's like we're not going to just like play a full set or don't have like a big enough catalog. So it's like y- you play other people's music, but it's like you go to see like that one person song, you know.
1: So you guys are Steve Aoki fans. We are. Yeah,
3: I do like Steve Aoki. It was one of the first EDM song I heard was a Steve Aoki song. It was Turbulence. The
1: f- You're first? from where he's from. Yeah. Yeah. Orange do you feel County. like you. I didn't a- even
3: know he was from Orange County until like maybe I think when we said we were gonna do this and you read, read the book, book. Yeah. do you know
0: what it's because I don't actually feel like he has the Orange County flair to him he doesn't really like,
3: and he doesn't like rep it like as much you I know? feel like
0: most OC musicians are like obsessed with it I feel yeah. like there's like a real Orange County scene there's like the Orange County scene the Inland Empire scene and yeah. then there's like the Bay Area music scene and they all rep themselves so hard in Steve Aoki right well, <laughs> yeah. he is he's an
1: outsider looking in to this yeah show. that's true
2: yeah if it anything he represents a more Japanese culture he talks about that yeah. a lot yeah. and he loves anime like he's got a whole company that does anime stuff so Whoa. he's Seems really like, where
0: does his money come from Benihana well <laughs> he said
2: I mean there wasn't like a legal dispute about that I didn't have a chance to look into that but I think what his stepmom died and then it was him and his sister or someone else there was like a whole
1: so you also are a Steve Aoki fan yes
2: when I started getting into the internet like 2007 2008 by like 2011 when Tumblr was blowing up I'm getting into like oh Tomorrowland Looks so cool, and I my first exposure to sort of electronic music was like you know that Calvin Harris era and all that. So I just seen all the photos of him caking people like that's I knew him as a guy that would cake people. Did you
0: know that caking hurt his performance
1: bookings?
2: Not at all, if anything, I would have thought that's. What was getting him booked?
1: I think it was. I think the fact that you just right now said as a CMOE fan that first and foremost, I knew him as a caker is why the bookers were mad. I think that's what helped him get a name. And then the music followed the name. Do you know what I mean? Yes.
3: It's so hard to say because he's been in the game for so long. Like I don't like the first time I discovered him like he was already popping. He did like the song I heard for the first time was with Lil Jon. So I'm like. Okay, yeah. like this guy's big already. I don't know like how long he's been yeah. in the game. He's already, been around forever. Know? I was always I shocked when
1: I found out how old he was. Yeah. Yeah, how he's old like is he? I think he's like 50. No, he's like 44 right
0: now. So he was born
1: in the butt 77.
0: Well, when I when I googled it today, it said he was 44. Okay.
1: It's Math like, checks <laughs> out.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah to be 44 and like You know, as much as we want to be DJs, I would never do 250 shows in a year. That's kill... That'll kill you. Understand how the fuck...
1: When he did the math of 15,000 cakes a year, I was like, buddy... There's a food crisis out there. That's <laughs> too many cakes.
2: Have you seen that iconic photo of the kid in the wheelchair being lifted up by all his friends and Steve Aoki Yes, him? dude. I, yeah, like like that's that is so is funny. such a viral photo. Oh, yeah. I really miss this part
0: of society. Yeah. I, yeah, somehow I was asleep during it. During <laughs> St- when Steve Aoki was caking, I was... I don't know. I do doing remember doing my homework. What was I up to? It did bring me
1: back to a time in my life when I feel like cakes had a real moment in society where people. Do you remember like people were like farting on cakes sexually? No. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what story. <laughs> Wait, move we <were laughs> on. <laughs> 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 what it. what was it?
3: like <laughs> getting what kind of reaction? Like <laughs> they wanted like a,
1: to
2: sniff the cake.
1: It was like a, a horny thrill. I don't know. What <laughs> was, do you Google? We were all on a different part of the cake. <laughs> yeah, internet. I feel cakes <laughs> having their
2: moment right now with the is it
3: real? Is it cake? Crap. Oh, dude, I, that show. For all you people who haven't seen it, watch it, it's so it good. It
1: is good. So as DJs in the yeah. DJ community, because me and Ashley both walked away from this book feeling like Steve was accidentally admitting to being kind of a yeah. hack and not that yeah. successful, but you're telling me he's respected and he's liked in the community. very, yeah, yeah, no,
3: he's like, But that's not yeah. sure.
1: successful, you say. Right. I'm respected saying respected as an artist.
2: Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I'd, I think like, <laughs> it, it's hard to say because yeah. I do, but there's a lot of like pure, like I think a lot of people again would be like, the the way I view us is like there's a lot you know especially with tech house a lot of it's like they expect emo kids behind the decks not saying a word you know faces just blank just playing music and us I like the Dylan Francis approach where it's like you go into a party you know there's a show like the visuals match the energy which matches all the songs like it's not just about you know playing the most pure music by just musicians like you go in there for a performance, for a show, and, like, that's what Steve Aoki is. So I can see how some people could be like, oh, well, you're making a gimmick out of this thing that means so much to me. But for me, I'm like, look, it's people getting fucked up in Vegas. They're on ecstasy. You know, some old dude's paying for the... T-. Like, Where the purity is gone. It's, it's long gone. That's true.
0: It's like, what yeah. culture are you trying to keep pure?
2: Yeah, exactly. Like,
0: just standing and watching someone spin discs artfully? Totally is hilarious. that, like, the thing that people are looking and to And it's see? like, he, like
3: really like it was such like an evolution of like electronic music of his era too you know like it went like complete 180 like throughout the book he's just like talking about like how can I do more like for the actual like performance you know he went and saw like someone I forget who it was and then he was like holy shit like yeah he's like I'm gonna spend my money on like production of the stage you know like having my name be there you know so it was like Kind of just, like, figuring out, like, the new world. You
0: guys are changing my tune on Stevie Aoki because I do think I've gone hard, no offense, against DJs who I feel like are up there to be, like, this is a thing that I'm presenting to you. And they're really trying to, like, shove something down your throats. And you're just like, all right, I do feel like you're here to, like, curate and nurture a vibe and make sure everyone has the most Fun, and that is the thing that he's
1: getting across in his book is like yeah. how can I make this the funniest exactly. thing possible. Yeah. Yeah, his first ever DJing gig he was doing all those vinyls that nobody liked and he was yeah. like that was the last time I ever did that because I believe a DJ is here to make sure you're having fun and not to yeah. slam right slam Which is the thing right. that, I, that was like the thing I highlighted in the book is like this is the one line that I like love and it's like turning me around but then he said some other weird stuff that I was like eh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah the other thing I want to give him credit for potentially that maybe we misread is I feel like he highlights a lot of his failures in the book and as somebody who doesn't know. About about any of his successes I was totally. like did you yes. ever come yeah. out the other side of this bro but apparently he did no, and he was totally. just being honest yeah. and vulnerable and it's sort of refreshing <laughs> to hear that like, exactly that yeah even
2: in the later stage of his career he would have failures and it sort of is one of them things like when we got tasked with the you know My Humps remix it's like you know, you're remixing a big song, you know, it's like, right. one. You're sort of lucky that it's sort of hard to fuck up because it's such a good song that, like, yeah. it's going to come through sort of like the Jack Harlow first class, you know, where, but then at the but same time, then you did fuck that up. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then at the same time, like, there is this expectation that it's going to be great. And, you know, he did like for the Pursuit of Happiness, he did 60 remixes. And then he's like, actually, the second one was the best one. And it didn't even blow up until the fucking got played in Project
3: X, you know, which is nice to hear, too, because it's like what he says about like, you know, you could put all this heart and soul into a song and then it's just mediocre. It's like sometimes like making music. That's just what happens. It's like,
0: yeah, we're not familiar with his successes. His book really highlights his failures. And even when he does mention a success, he doesn't really hype it up that hard and i think that if he had that would have read very annoying too yeah. <laughs> so i wonder if we should have just learned more about steve aoki no, before reading his we book we will not do we will research, not do research. No, smart, but <laughs> we're reading a book
1: exactly. more people want from us this is our research we're no, interviewing exactly. the experts okay i have a follow-up question <laughs> as steve aoki experts yeah. is he autistic
2: I b- have or, I don't know.
1: Or did he just have that chapter for no reason?
2: <laughs> was that even one of the dropouts? Because I only listened yeah. to the first like six of the dropouts. But because honestly, when he was doing the dropouts after like the chapter six, I'm like, these are sort of just tangents where he's like trying to figure out a way to include blue as like yeah. he's decided on this concept and he has to like.
1: So one of them was that autism awareness day is represented by the color blue, and yeah. he mm. just like said that. And then he's like, pretty cool, huh? And then we were like, Are you autistic? Are you just like, I, like yeah. I will say I Googled it and I couldn't find anything, but I was like, But why is this in here? He doesn't yeah. really conclude it with, and those are my people. <laughs> yeah, he really Can I is it fair for me to say yes. you did not appreciate the artistic crafting of the book with I, the chapters no, and the I drops in the chapter? Okay, can Dude, I ask Okay,
3: hold on. One oh. thing I needed to say, I want to say, like, did you, just, you guys not feel like it went from like time period like there was like one chapter that was like when he's in college and then it jumped to like 10 years later. I'm like, wait a minute, are we still
1: as like- people who have read a celebrity memoir a week for the last year and a half, I have to tell you, like our <sighs> hopes of a chron- chronology that is that all coherent. Have is that like not a-, a thing in memoirs, and they just don't so know how. And
0: you, you'd think it would actually be very easy to be like, all right, I'm writing a story of my life. I'll start with when I was born. I'll end with today, the most recent day yep. of writing. they don't they'll be like "All right," and then just circling back to that thing I mentioned to you like I mean he does that with Kanye West throughout the book he'll be like circling back to this other time I'm gonna leave this Kanye West thread untied and we'll get back to Kanye later and then he gets back to Kanye like three chapters later and it's like we talked on the phone
2: He'd be talking about something and then he's like, okay, my dad's dying. And I'm like, is he successful at this point or not? Because then he's like, I wish you could have seen me successful, but he's like already talked about all yeah, this other... So I'm just I like, know. I was confused about and the time And then timeline. when he goes
0: back and he's like talking about DJing and then it's nine eleven, and he's yes. like, I hadn't started DJing yet. It just like... W- no. was 9-11 and you're like okay
2: and then he's talking about managing mia and i'm like wait is he a successful dj at this point or yeah, he yeah was he doing yeah.
1: 250 shows a year and he was like hold yeah, on i can I'm manage like, a I career I'm, and also he's throwing he did a lot i will say one thing i will call him on is he used the phrase i helped it along a lot and i was like what a truly ambiguous phrase to like never quantify he's like i helped mia along by Putting a wedge between her and her L.A. manager yeah. <laughs> or her and her London manager. And the thing yeah. is,
2: Diplo was dating M.I.A. and produced, like, I think he produced yeah, Paper, paper planes, planes and all. Yeah. I, would like, he? yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that was helpful. Yeah, I'm like, how much did that... I that helped M.I.A. along. Well, Diplo
0: could probably write a book and say, I helped M.I.A. along. But he yeah. said that That's
2: about the pickle
1: memory. patch. He said it right. about... I think he said it about 9-11. I think he helped uh, 9-11 helped along, along at one point. Like a Mark Wahlberg
2: <laughs> type quote of like... When
1: he was like, I ran towards the towers.
0: I was like, oh, buddy, yeah. they did not need you. They did yeah. not. They were fine. And then he... Okay, so then <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask about the drops. Mm-hmm. Does he... So did you listen to the book? I oh. listened to the first six Okay, years. I did the
2: audio. audio so audible.
0: is the drop... Does he mean in terms of like dropping a beat as a DJ? He was trying to like. I think he was dropping an emotional beat because right. all of the oh drop chapters <laughs> were very emotional, but really about nothing. And I was like, "Wow! If this book is your DJ set and these chapters are the drops, it was not a good set." Yeah.
2: <laughs> to be fair, I'd never seen him live until about two months uh, ago. Yeah, a month you guys ago. just saw him. Yeah, so we oh, were yeah. we were when we were yeah. doing yeah. this yeah. NFT thing. The best decision we ever made was starting Party Shirt. The second best one was getting out of NFT. Is that? Okay. It's a nightmare. He's a
1: big NFT guy, right? He's,
2: and he said he's made more from NFTs than music. Is, Steve
1: Aoki is exactly who was supposed to get rich from an NFT, though. Yeah.
2: Honestly. And, like... He's that type of guy. A lot of DJs have, like, gravitated towards the space. Like, I'd say out of any traditional sort of, like, celebrity medium of athletes or actors or the DJs have just latched onto of the Of course, because it's,
1: like, it's very... You know what I mean? I feel like you're, like, yeah. on your laptop being, exactly. like, this is live yeah. music. If
2: you're not playing shows, you're <laughs> already is on the real laptop. art. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, so how was the experience of seeing him live
2: he was he great was and it was a really small sh- like um, House, we, what's small it was probably like 150 200 people oh that yeah. is small yeah well wow,
1: so us and Steve Aoki we're the same yeah we
3: fucked up though because we were like dude we should have brought the books and had him sign them like, yeah,
1: he
0: would have brought you back he would have been like this is the pool that has my face uh, at the bottom of it have a swim is uh, that a, a thing?
3: thing
0: yeah he has, he has a, a picture pool? of it He has he has a pool in and Vegas with his like logo is like painted on the bottom of the pool it's like a big deal to him
1: you know how all the drops were just like world crises that he slept through like yeah. the las vegas shooting and then 9 11 and then his marriage they were all like two <laughs> little traumatic events i bet he has one for every traumatic event that's happened in the world he was like this was the typhoon in thailand i wasn't yeah. there but but i heard drop. about it but and it, it, was it was blue it was the whole city was submerged in, in blue
2: and also, just the last chapter, I got so lost in about the like oh the neon future. Oh, like, oh my nah, god! Oh my god! When he said
1: because of his dad's death that he was gonna stop giving to real charities and start investing all of his charity money into living forever. Oh my! I was god. like, buddy, you gotta go to the therapy just twice. Yeah, maybe. hold on, yeah. Just just hold go on. To therapy. When he
3: open to, he's like, "Yeah, my favorite car as a kid was a BMW i8." I was like, "Dude, that car didn't come out." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, Pretty sure that car is less than 15 years <laughs> yeah, old. No. Like, I mean, the
0: things that he chooses to caveat in his book, like the places he second guesses himself one are in his like celebration of Michael Jackson he's like I know I know I know but you can't you gotta separate the art from the artist and I'm like yes you I guess had to say that like I think yeah. he, I think he could have been like look this was a part of my childhood everyone has heard of Michael Jackson right. and Michael Jackson was a yeah. part of everyone's childhood I don't yeah. think you have to be like listen and some ch- no. children's childhoods more than <laughs> other children's yeah. childhoods oh, <laughs> and then later when he's <laughs> caveating the other major thing that he spends like almost a full page explaining that he knows isn't right is uh, the color of the ocean yeah he's yeah, like I listen that. I know I know science wise scientists are gonna come for me I get that the ocean is a reflection of the sky
1: and i'm like how many scientists do you think red is blue how many like marine biologists were like man i loved you as a dj but i cannot get past yeah. the misconception this is where
2: i draw the line that thing
1: that you said about the ocean uh i hope you understand that
0: the book you're selling is a book of lies <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is dangerous
2: but the neon future thing of like anti-cancer that's real it, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah that, go for that we yeah, can yeah, live yeah. forever yeah, if, you just, spend enough. if yeah.
1: you just meditate hard enough yeah death only happens in east yeah. Yeah. only in America no, yeah. do people die
2: Yeah. in Japan
1: everyone's living forever yeah. that's you actually maybe true I think all the I think all the oldest old people live in Japan do you guys have any final Steve Aoki thoughts or?
2: on it, like it's just honestly like as much as we've ragged on him I'm honestly super impressed of his career because like some people sort of get into the music they have a viral hit and then they're just sort of writing that for the end of their career yeah. like him you can tell he's, he's been about the music forever and it's not always about producing it or like Recognizing his strengths and weakness, bringing other people in, promoting the shows. Like another thing is Dim Mac Tuesdays. I had heard of like when yeah, I yeah that was like like big. It was a thing legendary ever, thing. Like, oh, when I was we were in middle school. Dim yeah. Mac? the Dim
3: Mac, um block parties. Yeah, They were like, going Yeah, his yeah. record label.
2: They had these parties every Tuesday in LA, and like in that blog, two thousand and seven. Like era, you know, yeah. that was like the shit. And another interesting thing was he talked about Ed Banger Records and Daft Punk and Justice and how Justice inspired him and shit. And that's just such an interesting, like, every DJ, like, one in two DJs will be like, I was inspired to be a DJ because of Justice. And that's just, like, this UK French house thing. Yeah, this... Like
0: the DJ's Fugaz. Exactly, DJ's Fugaz. literally, it's
2: like... <laughs> Humor, but, yeah, no, honestly, I, like, love Steve Aoki. He's given me more respect for yeah. him. His music today, like, it's not... It was cool seeing him, but I'm, like... You know, his music was from another era, just like the music we right. make today is going to be outdated in five, ten years. Yeah. And then it's going to be a classic in 30, you know? It just sort of goes through these cycles. But, like, I'd love to see him produce some new shit that's sort of with the time. I know. I
3: can't even, like, yeah. tell you the last release, like, when it was. No. I'm like, I
2: don't No know. idea.
0: Yeah. yeah. I do think it's really... It seems like he's just a music super fan that yeah, kind of just kept is. trying to be like, where can I fit into the music industry? And yeah. he found it as, like... Kind Of a performance artist, yeah. and then
3: like
1: sometimes DJ, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, dude, I was just shook how many people he knew, you
1: know. Yeah, he knew. So, I mean, like, and what he was talking about with the pickle patch that right was the now, one thing I was yeah. like, could that be true? That it was on, s-? he was like comparing it to some pretty big, he was comparing it to CBGB's, and I was like, was this apartment building that you lived in dorm room, dorm
0: room <laughs> CBGB's? The CBGBs of Santa Barbara.
2: Yeah. Could that la- be true? And when he's like, I studied women's studies. Oh, I know. Like, <laughs> like,
1: he's, he's got a major. He's got a major. I was like,
2: what? And yet <laughs>
1: the man okay. can't find a wife or love. Yeah. Guess he has like, to get a master's or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go back yeah. to school. Yeah, back to school to prove he's not a fool. It's like
1: I majored in women's studies. trying to go.
0: Try and get a job at the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> Female body inspector. <laughs> lady. God, his activism in the book when he's like. You know, after the Las Vegas shooting, I was like, what can I do? So I I posted on my Instagram story what people could do. (laughs) And I'm just like, good. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Like any other white chick. I really appreciate (laughs) you. Steve Aoki is really the white chick of Asian DJs. (laughs) I bet you
1: that that's what he learned in women's studies. Honestly, yeah. Performative (laughs) activism. yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I found my calling.
1: Where can people find you? Where can people listen to you?
2: Yeah, so we're on TikTok at Party Shirt. But like like we said, this is a music one. So if you enjoy music, wear Party Shirt on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, anywhere you listen to music. And also, we're starting to play more shows. So if you like to see DJs, you like to have a fun time, you like house music and disco, come out and see us. That's That's pretty pretty much it.
1: Well, any final thoughts, Ash?
0: I guess, like I said before, I actually low-key like Steve Aoki. I just think everything he says and does is dumb.
1: Same I don't I find him deeply earnest and sweet I think he has no ill will I will say to be trapped at a party with him I would want to shoot myself in the head (laughs) he's the kind of person who has a lot of sincere ideas that are I find personally to be fucking stupid
0: yeah I do think that like if you got stuck in a room with him where he was explaining his like anti-aging agenda I would have a really hard time with it but overall I do genuinely wish him well
1: anyway we love you guys so much on the patreon this week we're going to watch the Hillsong documentary, talk about Hillsong blind items. And thank you so much to everybody who listens. We love you.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much to everyone who's come out to our live shows. And thank you to our five star reviewers. Thank you so much to Nacho Fries are back. Thank you even more for that PSA. Thank you, Nina GHG. You are an absolute G. Thank you. I'm feeling sublime. You're not the only one, but you're the best one. Bah! that's a line from a sublime song thank you brett227 I appreciate you 227 times in a row thank you Indy's auntie I am so jealous that Indy gets to have a kick ass aunt like you thank you Sammy Pillar you are an absolute pillar of this community thank you I heart bingo 1732 I heart you back and I hope you win at bingo this week thank you Abby grills grill up something for me too while you're at it Thank you, Elizabeth Taylor. Your violet eyes and impeccable reviews are your absolute legacy. Thank you, Sam from Totally Spies. I spy an absolute angel. Thank you, Totally Not a Mommy, dot 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 yet. Well, when you are, you'll be the best mommy. Thank you, Simp Cocktail. Pour me one, baby, because I'm a simp for you. Thank you, Erin Kahir. I Kahir a review I adore, and a wormy I adore. Thank you, Nicole Rizzo. You are my favorite baseball player. Thank you, 97 is back. For you, it never left. Thank you, Murgraf. Uh I would love to graph a Mur right on my heart. Uh, and that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love ya.